All right. Good morning, friends. Find your seats. Good to have you today. Welcome to Cedar Mill Bible Church. My name is Pastor Dave. We're thrilled you're here. If you're a guest or a visitor, special welcome to you. Hey, before we jump into the message this morning, I was just thinking that my family and I have now been in Oregon for over two months, and um, thank you for that. That's how we feel about it, actually, as well. And I figured many of you are probably wondering, and it's probably just time for us to declare which team that we're going to cheer for. Because what I understand about this issue is that there's really no middle ground to it. That to, to sort of be ambiguous is insulting to people on both sides of the aisle. And so um, with that in mind, I thought it best to just be open and straightforward and transparent about where we are. And so at the risk of offending at least some of you here this morning, today the Teixeira family, as newcomers to the state of Oregon and the city of Portland, want to declare that the team we will be cheering for is the Portland Trailblazers. So, um, whew, now that didn't seem to go as bad as I thought. Um, well, okay, now that's behind us, we can move on. Luke chapter 1, pull out your Bibles if you have them with you today. If you're using a Bible from the pew rack in front of you, I invite you to do that, and it's on page 1012. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today. We are launching a new series this morning called In Our Midst. Today we're going to deal with the first four verses in the Gospel of Luke. We're tackling what's called today the prologue or the introduction. And introductions really serve to set the stage for what is to come. Introductions are sort of like road maps. They let you know where it is that you are headed. And so in our introduction today, we get some clues... Not just, I believe, about what Luke will tell us, but more importantly, we are going to get some clues this morning about how Luke will say it, how Luke will share and communicate this ever-important message of hope that he's been entrusted with. You see, if we look closely at these verses, these first four simple verses, I believe we can gain some insight into the kind of life that Luke lived, the kind of man that he was, And I believe also the kind of people that you and I must be in order to communicate and share the gospel message effectively in our world like Luke did in his. By the way, just for information's sake, the four verses we study today, in your English translation, those verses will be broken into two sentences. Actually, in the original Greek, it's just one long sentence. So the entire message this morning will cover only one sentence from the Word of God. And some of you are thinking, sweet, that means the sermon will probably be short, and I'm here to tell you, don't hold your breath. Okay. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, how to share... The greatest story ever told. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." The first thing we see in this introduction is that Luke shares the greatest story ever told with amazing amounts of humility. 
Did you know that of all the various writers in the New Testament, of which, by the way, do you know how many there are? Do you know how many authors composed the New Testament? Any guesses? Seven? Any others? Two hundred? Well, good. Hey, good for you for being bold. It's actually eight or nine. Eight or nine because there's some debate about the book of Hebrews. Did Paul write it or did Paul not write it? If you believe he did, there are eight. If you believe he did not, there are nine. So eight or nine authors. Did you know that of the eight or nine authors who wrote in the New Testament, Luke contributes more chapters and verses than any of them? You see, when we talk about the the most significant contributor to the New Testament, most of the time, all the credit goes to Paul. Paul steals all the glory. And I'm not saying Paul doesn't deserve some glory. I mean, Paul, he contributes quite a bit. Paul actually writes the most books, 13 or 14, again, depending on Hebrews. But there's a lot of material that Paul provides for us. But when it comes to chapters and verses and words penned between the Gospel of Luke and its sequel, the Gospel of Acts, which Luke also wrote, Luke is actually the largest contributor to the New Testament. He wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, it's a good little bullet point to stick on your resume, don't you think? Like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a writer. Oh, you're a writer. What do you write? You know, this and that, the Bible. (laughs) Most of the New Testament, actually. right? It's, It's a fairly impressive thing. And yet... In his 52 chapters and 1,151 verses, how many times do you think Luke mentions his own name? Zero. He never pens his own name, not even once. Not even in this introduction. Not even as he introduces this book does he say, Hey, this is Luke writing. Luke here. Going to tell you some cool stuff. He never writes his own name. He never even gives himself credit. Not even once. He doesn't cite himself as author. He doesn't take credit for his work. He's only mentioned in the New Testament three times, all three of those times briefly, and every single time by Paul. See, he's actually in this story. What's crazy about this is that Luke is in the story. The story Luke is telling in Luke and Acts, he's in that story. We're going to find out about that in a little bit. But he goes out of his way not to mention himself. He has ample opportunity to do it, to name drop and to say, hey, I was there, there I am, look at me. But he never mentions his own name. I'll tell you whose name he does mention, though. Jesus. In fact, of the 1,151 verses Luke writes, 568 of them, roughly half of Luke's gospel, are the words of Christ. Half of Luke's gospel are are words that came directly from the lips of Jesus. You see, Luke is one of the most humble people in Scripture. He doesn't want recognition. He doesn't want fame. He doesn't want notoriety. He simply wants his readers to know and experience Jesus. He steps out. He steps back from the limelight and he pushes Jesus in. He says, don't look at me. Look at him. I was reading John MacArthur this week, and he says this. He's talking about Luke. He is content to be humbly hidden behind his massive and marvelous two-volume inspired writings. And he lets the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the theme of his writing, dominate. 
That's who dominates Luke's writing. That's who dominates Luke's story, the story he's telling. It's Jesus. You see, one of the things I believe Luke communicates so clearly through his life and through his writing and all throughout this gospel, even in this little introduction, is this simple little phrase. It's not about me. Say that with me this morning. It's not about me. Doesn't that feel good? One more time. It's not about me. Do you believe that today? No, you don't. No, you don't. I get your complaint cards about the worship service. Say it again. It's not about me. Some of you remember uh, a while back, there was a popular worship song, and this is a little dated, so it's going to date me a little bit, but uh, there's this worship song that went like this. It's all about you. Remember this one? Jesus, and all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. My singing makes you nervous, doesn't it? It's not about me, as if you should do things my way, for you alone are God, and I surrender to your ways. Remember that song? You guys ever seen that? No, don't, don't applaud my singing. That, that's, that's just a courtesy applaud. Um, but when that song was out and popular, my, Amy and I were, were newlyweds. And sometimes when I would get a little narcissistic or selfish or self-focused the way I can tend to get, Amy, in the most loving and gracious way she possibly could, she would just sing that song to me. Only, only she would change the words a little bit. I'd be kind of throwing a little like selfish, self-focused temper tantrum and she'd just say real nicely, It's all about you. David and I'm telling you when your wife sing mocks you it puts you in the in your place right away and that is why we are going to the marriage conference next weekend um Friends, Luke knows very clearly when we see it right off the top it's not about him There are no accomplishments listed. There's no Christian resume. He's not in here saying, "Hey, look at all the things I've done for God." And he did a lot for God. But he doesn't draw attention to it. He puts himself in the background so that Jesus can be in the foreground. Here's another interesting thing about Luke. In Acts 15, he enters the story. I told you he was a part of this story that he tells. He writes Luke. He writes Acts. He doesn't show up on the scene until Acts 15. Now, if he writes Acts and he doesn't mention his name, how do we know that he shows up on the scene? It's a good question, right? Here's how. All throughout Acts, Luke is primarily telling about the life and journeys of Paul. And as he does this, he's talking about Paul and his companions. And he's saying, and Paul did this, and Paul went here, and Paul and Timothy, and Paul and Silas, and Paul and Barnabas, and they did and said, and da-da-da-da. And then all of a sudden in Acts 15, real subtly, almost like undetectably, we get these we statements. Now instead of, and Paul did this, and Paul said this, all of a sudden it's, and... We did this, and we went here. And so now all of a sudden we can see that Luke has entered the story. You see, Luke has become a traveling companion of Paul. We're told in Colossians that Luke is a physician, and tradition tells us that he was actually Paul's personal physician. He traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey, and then all the way until the end of Paul's life, Luke was with him as his personal physician. You can imagine how close they were. And check this out. This is a really cool little insight about Luke. At the end of Paul's life, 
Paul was in prison. He was imprisoned in Rome, and he was actually there awaiting execution. You see, at that time, Nero was the emperor, and he had ratcheted up the persecution of Christians, and he was killing them by the hundreds and maybe even thousands. And so all the Christ followers in Rome had fled. But Paul was there in prison, just waiting for his death. And in Paul's very final letter, the very last work of Paul that we have in our possession, he writes a letter to one of his friends who's in Ephesus, his friend Timothy. It's the letter 2 Timothy. And listen to what he says. Paul is talking to Timothy and he's telling Timothy how he's doing. And he says, all of my companions have deserted me. They've all fled. They've all like, run for their lives. But then he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Everyone else is gone. Everyone else has fled. Everyone else has chosen the path of self-preservation, but not Luke. He's still here. What a humble, faithful, selfless man this is. And right away from the very beginning of his gospel, he doesn't even mention his own name. And we can already see his humility shining through this story. He shares the gospel with tremendous humility. The second thing we see in this introduction is that Luke shares the greatest story ever told with credibility. Listen to these two verses again. This is verses three and four. Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke understands here, friends, that what will bring credibility to the gospel, his gospel message in this world, the world into which he is writing, is confirmation of the facts. He knows the gospel message at this point in time, in this culture, at this moment in history, needs confirmation of the facts. You see, right now, in Luke's life, some time has passed. Some, you know, things have moved on, and now people have heard the story of Jesus, and they're starting to wonder. They're starting to question. They're starting to say, is it true? Did a virgin really have a baby? Did a guy truly walk on water? Did Jesus honestly take a little boy's Lunchable and feed thousands of people with it? Did Jesus calm storms and heal the sick and raise the dead and teach the amazing things we've heard? Can we verify, people are asking, that after dying on the cross, Jesus laid in the tomb and then rose again to life and people actually laid eyes on him, put their hands in the wounds that were in his wrists. See, right off the bat, Luke says, if the facts are what will bring credibility to the gospel, then know this, I will find the facts. I have checked them out. I have done some very thorough investigative work. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I have sat and spoken with the people that were there. If you need facts, if you need confirmation, if you need info, Luke says, I've got it for you. You see, for a number of reasons, scholars believe that Luke wrote his gospel sometime before 62 AD. That's not even 30 years after Jesus died on the cross. 
This means that Luke's research happened sometime before then. So not a whole lot of time has passed between Jesus' death and resurrection and when Luke starts to research this story. He has traveled around with Paul. He's been traveling with Paul. And during those travels, he's had the chance to talk to many of the people who were witnesses of Jesus' life. Luke spent time, perhaps, with people like John and Peter and Thomas and James. Maybe he even interviewed the centurion. Remember the centurion from a few weeks ago, the Roman centurion? Maybe he even sat with him and said, tell me the story again. Maybe he even talked with Martha or Zacchaeus, you know, the wee little guy that goes up in the tree to see Jesus. I can just see Luke hunting him down and saying, tell me how it went, Zacchaeus. Tell me about that day. How many were there? Where was this tree? Why did you climb it? Did you know that Luke is the only gospel writer who includes details about Jesus' early life and childhood? Could this be because at some point, Luke had the chance to sit and talk to Mary? Mary, I've heard the stories, but tell me again, what was it like when the angel Gabriel appeared to you and told you what would happen? How did you feel? What did you do? Tell me again the words to that song that people say you sang. Friends, the point is this. A historian is only as good as his sources, and Luke wants Theophilus to know that his sources have tremendous credibility because his sources were on the scene. Friends, we just finished a five-week series on faith, and sometimes when people think about faith, they think it simply means blind trust. Sometimes when people think about faith, they, they think it means Believing or trusting in something that you have no proof or evidence for. I do not think that is what faith is, and neither does Luke. Luke says, faith always goes beyond the evidence, but it doesn't go against the evidence. Faith always goes beyond the evidence. It'll go in the direction the evidence is pointing, but there will be a moment where you have to trust, you have to leap, you have to step out, but it will not go against the evidence. And so Luke digs up as much evidence as he possibly can because he wants there to be credibility for the gospel message that he shares. Luke says to Theophilus, the reason you can have confidence, the reason you can have faith, the reason you can have increasing security in this story is because it is a credible story. Now here's the question, friends, and do not miss this. I'm going to throw a little curveball at you at this point. What about us? How do we bolster the gospel message with credibility in our world? I'll ask it this way. To to raise the credibility of the gospel in our world today, what do people need from us? To raise the credibility of the gospel in our world today, what do people need from us? You see, what Theophilus needed from Luke was some good historical research. And so Luke says, then I'll give you some good historical research. But friends, I do not think the people in our world today need more research and information from Christians. Here's what I believe will raise the credibility level of Christianity in Portland, Oregon, 2013. Christ followers who live and love like Jesus. You want to bolster the credibility of the gospel message we proclaim? Live and love like Jesus. Don't just throw facts at people. People in our world don't need facts anymore. They did in the first century, right? Not today. Today we have this thing called the 
internet. There's nothing you can tell people about Christianity. They can't read online. But what they can't find online is a community of Christ followers living radically and vulnerably and transparently loving, grace-filled lives that seek to follow the truth of God by relying on the Holy Spirit. You see, facts are easy. A life following Jesus, that's hard, but that's what our world needs. I'll say it again. Our world desperately needs people who will live radically vulnerable, transparent, loving, grace-filled lives that seek to follow the truth of God by relying on the Holy Spirit. Friends, that is how you and I, we as a body of believers who follow Jesus, can raise the credibility of the gospel in our world today. Luke, he writes with humility. He communicates to bring credibility. And finally, in this opening introduction, Luke shows us that he will share the gospel relevantly. If you notice who Luke addresses his account to, he writes this entire gospel story to this guy he calls most excellent Theophilus. Right? Like, really cool Theo. No. Doesn't translate, does it? Most excellent Theophilus. In case you you have this idea that maybe Luke's just trying to butter up his crowd, that's not it at all. Most excellent is actually the way a person would address a high-ranking official in the Roman government. So that's who Theophilus is. Theophilus is someone who has climbed the ladder in Roman society. And because of his title, and because the name Theophilus is not a Jewish name, it's a Gentile name, we know a little bit about who is writing this gospel to. He's writing to a guy who's a Gentile, not a Jew. He's writing to someone who would have been highly educated in the disciplines of the Greco-Roman world. And he's writing to someone who certainly would have been part of the upper class in society. Now, one thing you can't see in your English translation of the scriptures, but I'm going to tell you about it, is that Luke writes this introduction, this first sentence of his gospel, in a different language, a different form of Greek than he writes the whole rest of his account. This introduction, these four verses, are written in a style of Greek that is known as literary classical Greek. The rest of Luke's gospel goes on to be written in common Greek, but this opening, literal classical Greek. One scholar I read this week said, it is the best bit of Greek in the entire New Testament. It's just so formal and polished and posh, this opening sentence. So the question is, why? Why would Luke do this? Why would he separate out this introduction and write in this very specialized uh, form? Well, here's why, friends. It's because Luke knows that writing this way will speak most effectively to the person he's writing to. Luke knows that writing this way will speak effectively to this man who is highly educated and upper class and who's a Roman official and he's trying to communicate with him and he's trying to say, I understand who you are, I understand what you need and so I'm going to communicate in ways that are best for you. Friends, right off the bat, we see that Luke understands his audience. He gets it. He's thinking about who's on the other end of this gospel. And this is just a little snippet of Luke's commitment to relevance. He does this all throughout his gospel and even into the the book of Acts. He writes in ways 
that his Gentile readers, because Luke writes for Theophilus, but he also writes for a larger audience of Gentile God-fearers, he writes in ways that they will understand. I'll say it another way. Luke is vehemently committed to being relevant to the culture he communicates to. In Luke chapter 2, give you a couple of examples of this. Luke chapter 2, Luke dates the birth of Jesus, and he says, here's how you know when Jesus was born. He was born when so-and-so was the emperor, and so-and-so was the governor. He cites two Roman officials. Why? Because he knows the Gentiles will understand this. Matthew, like in Matthew's gospel, Matthew, Mark, John, they're constantly referring back to these Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfills, right? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. Luke doesn't include any of that in his gospel. Why not? Because the Gentiles he's writing to won't get it. It's not because he doesn't think it's important. It's because he's trying to be relevant, Luke very seldom quotes the Old Testament. Listen to this. He never, not even once, uses the Jewish term rabbi for Jesus. How many times Jesus is referred to as a rabbi in the other Jewish gospels? Yeah, not in this one. Why? Luke chooses a different term. He chooses the Greek term that means master. Again, he understands who he's writing to. Don't lose the point here, friends. Luke goes out of his way to share the gospel relevantly. And this might be the most important point for us to consider this morning. Because sometimes in churches, I don't know if you've experienced this, I have. Sometimes in churches we get this weird idea that cultural relevance is in some way selling out to the world. Ooh, that church is trying to be relevant. They're worldly. They've given up on God. No. Friends, consider this. This is a bold statement, but I believe it's 100% true. Cultural relevance is such a biblical principle that it's the way the Bible is written. Cultural relevance goes so deep into who we are and are called to be as Christ followers that the Bible itself is even written in a culturally relevant way. The number one contributor to the New Testament writes the story of Jesus in a way that his culture can understand and receive it. Was he selling out to the world when he did this? No. No. He writes so that his message can be received. How about us? Do we think about the way Luke did, how we might communicate in our culture, in relevant ways that builds bridges to people in our society? Or do we just insist on insider speak? Because I'll be honest and direct here. I'll just be really upfront with you. Sometimes the calling, the biblical calling to be relevant means giving things up the way we like them. Sometimes it means that we will do things we don't like to do and not do things that we do like to do because we want for them to come to Christ more than for us to be comfortable. You see, our comfort and how we like stuff is not God's highest priority. Reaching people with the message of Jesus is. And when you're a follower of Jesus and you're following this guy, it's yours too. One thing I wonder as I 
Read Luke and see how culturally relevant he is. I wonder, did he learn that idea from Paul or did Paul learn that idea from him? You know, they traveled together for a lot of years. They were companions. They were very close. I mean, you're pretty close with your personal physician, right? They know like all the nitty gritty about you. So these two guys are really close. I wonder, which way did the relevance flow? Because Luke, we see so much cultural relevance in his writing and the way he shares the gospel. But Paul, he just comes right out and declares, I'm going to be culturally relevant in the way I share the gospel. Listen to these words that Paul writes. This is like the definition of relevance right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is Paul. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Do you know how much Paul hates the law? He rails against the law. He begs Christians not to be under the law anymore. And yet here he says... To those under the law, I became like under the the law. And then there's a little caveat. Though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. Who here loves being weak? To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. And then here's the linchpin. Here's the driver. Here's why he does it all. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I'll sacrifice myself and lay down my life, my own personal preferences, and be relevant to those I'm committing to for the sake of the gospel. Listen, this is how Eugene Peterson, the writer of The Message, translates this passage in 1 Corinthians. I love this. I love how he describes this very same passage. Peterson says this. This is 1 Corinthians 9, paraphrase. Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone... I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. But I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all of this because of the message, because of the gospel. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. I did all this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. Do you want to be in on it? Do you want to be part of it? Do you want to join God and what he's doing in this world and on this planet to offer a message of hope and salvation and life to people who desperately need it? If you do, then I say to you, church, be like Luke. Share that message with humility. Live that message with credibility and offer the gospel message however you can relevantly in ways that make sense to the person you're trying to reach. 
what do the people in this world need to hear from us these days? How can we package this message that's such a gift in a way that they might hear and receive and be open to it? That's our task. That was the task of Luke. And I think the closing thought that I have this morning is why? Why does this matter so much to Luke and why should it matter so much to you and me? Here's why. Here's why. Right away in this gospel, he says, here's why communicating this message effectively matters so much because God was among us. Read those words in the passage. He said, this thing that God's been up to, the redemption of the world, the saving of the entire planet, that thing, it happened in our midst. He's not a far-off God. He loves us so much. He cares for for broken, fallen, hurting, sinful, desperate people so much that He, up there, came down here. And that message, Luke says, however we need to share it, must get out. You know what's even cooler? Luke will go on to say throughout his work that It didn't just happen back then. This is not just a historical reality, a moment in time, something that went down a few thousand years ago. No. He says, this God who came down and was among us, he's still here. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is still in our midst. He's still around saving and redeeming and restoring lives. And so whatever we need to do, To share that message, church, let's do it. Let's share with humility. Let's share with credibility. And let's offer it relevantly. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the way you call us to stretch ourselves that other people might hear the good news. Thank you, Lord, for men like Luke, men in the scriptures who are examples to us of of selflessly living and stretching and yearning and seeking and striving to do anything they possibly can to remove themselves from the equation that you might be lifted up and offered to people in a world who desperately need you. God, give us the strength. Give us the power. By your grace, may we be people. May may we, as Cedar Mill Bible Church, carry and offer the greatest story ever told the way your servant Luke did. That's our prayer, together, for your glory. Amen.